Southern Skies. Online Media. Plane Crazy Down Under's coverage of Wings Over Illawarra 2012 is brought to you by Aviation Advertiser, Australia's largest online aviation marketplace, now featuring employment classifieds, aviationadvertiser.com.au, and by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone or iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. And by Jet Ride Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L-39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 87 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer, and we're here at the uh, Wings Over Illawarra Air Show, and uh, Grant McHeron, we survived the, uh, what, 30, 40-hour drive to get here? Oh, 300 hours, it felt like, mate, mostly because we were all stuck in a car together. Well, somebody who didn't have to uh, suffer anywhere near that sort of uh, torturous long trip is Anthony Crichton. Grant, Anthony, welcome, and uh, you came down in a 172. Oh, good afternoon, fellas. It was. It was a great flight. I haven't flown a Cessna for... Ooh. Ten years, maybe a bit, maybe a bit less, maybe eight years. So it was a journey of discovery. A oh, journey of discovery. <laughs> and they yeah. let you use, loosen it. <laughs> well, there was two two pilots in the front, but um, neither of us had flown flown one of those for a long time. So we just between the two of us, we made it. Okay, so <laughs> it was a proficiency flight, really. If you want to look at it that way. That's right, absolutely. And what happened to the pits? Why no pits? Oh uh, well, I, I had an offer to bring the one seven two down as, on the proviso that I brought all the gear down for um, the blokes at Combat Dragon. They bought their par- their paraphernalia in the back of the one seven two. So not not only you missed out on bringing the pits, but you didn't get to come down in the in the Dragonfly either? Uh, no, well, Jeff and uh, Joel bought the Dragonfly down at about 400 knots. About five minutes it took them to get here from Bankstown. <laughs> and I came down uh, in 40 minutes at 100 knots. <laughs> and, yeah. and I got to bring my wife down as well for a fly, and uh, who's sitting over there waving at us. Hey, honey. Hey, mate. She's watching Anthony be a radio star. He's, he's told her for years that he was, and uh, now she's seeing it actually happen. <laughs> and she hasn't stopped laughing yet. We're sitting here in the uh, the hangar at Southern Biplanes, and uh, boy, they, uh, the weather, they've turned on a great day here in the Illawarra for uh, uh, for the air show. We were a little bit worried looking at the weather forecast uh, a few days out, but uh, boy, what a fantastic day. In fact, as we look now, even the wind has died down, so uh, lucky, lucky for that. Yeah, absolutely spectacular. The winds drop right off. Uh, skies clear blue, only a tiny little bit of cloud here and there, and I can see what looks like a caribou climbing for altitude. The wind is so calm, the wind socks wrapped around the pole. <laughs> there you go. C- certainly wasn't the case when we started here. Well, uh, we've got another full program here on this episode. Uh, this episode is dedicated entirely to our coverage uh, of, of the wings over the Illawarra Air Show. So uh, we're going to get out there. We've got RAAF crews here with the uh, C-130. The Navy's here with some helicopters. The Army parachute team's here. And uh, every other aircraft you can imagine. And, of course, we've also got a, a fantastic display here from Haas, the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society. So, guys... Uh, Let's get those recorders ready and get into it. I think so, mate. Lots to do. Fantastic. Look forward to it. Well, anybody who's listened to this show for any length of time would know that my favourite aircraft is the C-130 Hercules, and we're very lucky to have uh, some members here from 37 Squadron to uh, tell us all about the Herc. We've got uh, Flying Officer uh, Daniel Kruger and Warrant Officer Brett Lewis. Guys, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Daniel, uh, you're a pilot. Yeah, that's right. Tell us all about it. How would you get into the RAF, and uh, how would you find yourself uh, in the C-130 in particular? Yeah, I got into the RAF when I was around about 24 years old, so I'd previously done engineering and uh, work in the airlines and stuff like that, and I was able to get through a lot of qualifications um, before I was able to get into the RAF because of my eyesight, but uh, once I got past that, I was able to get in and uh, start my pilot training, 
through direct entry and uh, by about a year into the RAF I was starting to fly the basic flying training and uh, go into the advanced flying training at 2FTS. Now that's an interesting entry scheme, you say you, you were looking at coming in through the airlines and all that sort of stuff and most of the RAF pilots that we've talked to have come straight in and gone straight into pilot training but you'd already had that experience before you went to the Air Force, that's, is, is that becoming more common in the RAF? I think a lot of people in direct entry have the opportunity to do a few, a few things in life before coming in and I think that sort of gives a bit more of a an all-rounded defence force, I guess, through officers because they may have some civilian experience and then come into the military as opposed to uh, come in from school straight into ADFA and get their degrees and stuff like that. So I guess it just allows for a little bit more of a diverse workforce. But, um, yeah, I do agree. It certainly becomes a lot of people that uh, trend to go from the military into the civilian airlines. But, uh, yeah, I think it works fairly well. I, personally, I've uh, really enjoyed a lot of my time in the military. It's uh, And to have seen the civilian side of it as well has been interesting. And the military is uh, very stimulating with uh, a lot of the people that we work with, a lot of the places that we go to and uh, the machinery that we work with. Yeah, you guys have got such a high operational tempo at the moment that you'd be doing a lot of uh, really interesting and, I guess, challenging flying at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you, it fascinates me, a lot of, you know, you talk to young kids and they say, I want to be a, a RAF pilot. And, you know, they all think they want to be a fast jet pilot. Now, I've always said if I ever had got into flying in the RAF, I'd want to fly heavy aircraft. I mean, was that an ambition for you or did you ever have your eyes on the, on the fast jets? Yeah, I certainly had my ambition on fast jets. So that's a lot of the things that they actually enrol and a lot of their promotional uh, advertising is uh, is about to become a fighter pilot. But um, I had family history. My brother was a uh, Herc pilot and a jet pilot, so sort of had a little bit of a mixture of both uh, both fields, saw how he enjoyed both of them. Personally, I've found that being posted onto the Hercs has been a brilliant experience. It's been very enjoyable. It's uh, given me a lot of opportunity within the Defence Force and within my career so far. I've uh, done a lot of exciting things in my life that I never thought I'd be able to do, and uh, it's been incredible. Like some of the uh, things that we've carried, some of the people that we've been um, operating with, uh, a lot of the different nations that we've worked with as well, and uh, a lot of the destinations I never thought I'd uh, operate into as well. So it's been quite an interesting experience. We see a lot of um, focus now on the C-17 with, with that obviously becoming, a, you know, it's, it's out there in the media and it's being promoted as the, the heavy lifter. But I guess the, the Herc fleet is, is still out there and, and doing a lot of work, even though they're probably not getting as much um, publicity as they used to get. Yeah, I guess uh, for lack of a better expression, we're kind of the quiet achievers. We do a lot of work around the world. And uh, I guess it, uh, it allows us to do a lot of work. And when it, we've got multiple aircraft with the J model and the H, and the, uh, I think the capability that we provide the Australian government is, uh, is of very good quality. Yep, and you'd be obviously cross-trained, you can fly the H and the J? Um, no, with the pilots, it's actually a very different type of aircraft. The H model is is quite an old uh, old type of aircraft. The J model has come in and is a quite a new generation of Herc. Um, from the outside and uh, from a lot of the uh, lot of the basic parts of the aircraft, it's very similar. But uh, from an operator, from a pilot's point of view, it's a completely different aircraft. It's almost uh, operating in the leagues of 747s and A380s kind of thing with its technology. It's got uh, head-up displays and uh, incredible navigation system. And, yeah, it's got some very, very uh, up-to-date technology in it. With Loadmasters, uh, there's a, a bunch of us, probably uh, the senior instructors and... Uh, 
and guys that are and checkers that are cross qualified on H and J. So we sort of switch between the both. But usually when you get to the squadron, you're allocated a flight, and it's either a J model flight or a uh, H model flight, and you sort of stay with that. But you have to maintain a currency throughout the year to uh, to do that. So I'm cross qualified H and J, but majority of my hours have been uh, certainly J model, and you know it's, a lot of people have their favourites, and uh, you know I certainly favour the J. That's for sure. But it's because what I trained on initially, you know, and started on. So, but uh, yeah, there's a, probably half the squadron of loadmasters are qu- cross qualified. Oh, I note, I note that um, now with the J model, it's a two pilot operation. Just the two of you up there with all that glass, both looking out glass and cockpit glass. Uh, so you've got a, a smaller flight deck crew, but as you're saying, the loadmasters qualified for H and J. Uh, what's the difference uh, between the H and the J from a loadmaster perspective? Yeah, down the back, essentially, you know, it, it is the same. Apart from you know, the J model is 15 foot longer, so we can carry an extra two pallets, uh, and it equates to about 40 passengers extra. So we have a lot more capability down the back, as in size-wise. Uh, what we do essentially is the same. You know, the floor pattern is quite the same. Uh, the type of cargo we carry is quite the same. It, it sort of differs when we go into operating on the aircraft with checklists and procedures. You know, you have to be around the different. You know, a H model checklist is different to a J model checklist due to the, you know, engineer and navigators' roles on the on the H model. So uh, it takes a bit of uh, getting the books out before you go flying to just get your head around you know that type of aircraft because you refer back to what's natural and for me it's certainly the J model and uh, when I do fly H I, you know, I have to take a bit of time out to just concentrate that that is the right way of doing things on the H. Well with having as you just pointed out the, the H model has the uh, the engineer it has the navigator as well as the two pilots have you as a loadmaster had to pick up any additional tasks now that there's just the two pilots up the front? Yeah we uh, when we started off with the J model so I did my ab initio training on J model, so I uh, was my first lot of flying. So we uh, delved into the technical side a little bit more than what they would have done on the H model. Um, so you know, we learn a bit more about the aircraft than you normally would because on a H you rely on the flight engineer who has a massive technical background. So you you know you tend not to touch that. Now on the J, it, you know, it's a different crew makeup, and we call it crew resource management. Uh, on the J, you certainly are relied a lot more by the pilots uh, for not just you know what you do down the back, but communication-wise, you know, air traffic control. Um, you know, visually looking after other planes in a, in a busy airport environment. You know, such as coming here today, we had to do that. Um, and I find that you know. Going on a H, I feel I don't have as much input because there's a flight engineer and navigator, so uh, you're just a loadie down the back, really. <laughs> well, how did you become the loadie down the back? What was your path? Yeah, I joined I joined the Air Force as a supplier, so I worked in warehousing for about a year or two, and then that uh, mustering um, ended up doing air movements. So I loaded, unloaded Hercules, 7Os, Caribous for about five years. So I, I certainly love that, and I used it as a career stepping stone to get to Loadmaster. You know, so many times I'd load up a Herc, and the Herc would taxi out and take off, and you didn't know where it went and uh, I thought I want to do that job and you know so I uh, remastered to Loadmaster and I've been doing that for about 11 years and that's where I am now so uh, yeah you can't join as a Loadmaster straight off the street you have to be with internal uh, of the Defence Force and, and the Air Force so um, yeah you've, you've got to get your foot in the door if you want to join as a Loadmaster you, you just can't do that. So you've got, you got to get the hang of um, provisioning and lo- yeah, logistics and all you that. start off from a sergeant rank so they you know from that rank you're expected to know a little bit about the Air Force and uh, the military and also hold that demeanour. 
Yeah. When you guys are planning a flight, obviously you obviously work together as a team. I'm, I'm curious about the flight planning, about how you organise the loading of the aircraft. I mean, talk about the routine that you guys will go through to get that all set up so that you're obviously in balance the whole time. Yeah, we communicate quite a lot with mission planning. I guess uh, mission planning has uh, multiple elements that we have to consider. We've got, uh, I guess, endurance considerations. We've got weight limitations for the aircraft. And um, when we combine these two main elements with the loadmaster and the pilot, it gives us an opportunity to find out what we can actually do to try and maximise the efficiency of of uh, places that we can go to and also the amount of people or cargo that we can carry. So it, uh, it also has a lot of different elements of uh, the aer- aerodromes that we're going to because an aerodrome may be a certain width or a certain length or the, the runway may only be of a certain strength. So we have to be uh, sure that we can get in and out of there. Also with terrain as well to make sure we can actually, uh, when we get all this payload, that we can get out of there as well. So it's, uh, there are quite a lot of uh, different challenges and also with the with the nature of our military operations it really depends on what we are looking at doing whether it's going to be a tactical role at night with MVGs as well so these add other complications into the mission planning that will make it a lot more of a uh, of a crude kind of mission planning event and it can go into quite a lot of detail with the load masters and uh, other mission planners as well. Now you were coming down here today I mean even a short flight here from from where you where have you come down from Richmond or yeah, that's right. So you would even plan that out pretty well just to, to come down here. I mean, you know, I know you've got a, a ground power unit with you, so you would have had to have that loaded up, for example. Yeah, we, we certainly brought a load with us today. So we brought a uh, ground power unit for power for the day because, you know, it's uh, a lot of aircraft here that require that, and that, you know, the resources aren't here for that. So we bought that, and uh, we also bought a tow motor to uh, put it on and off the aircraft. Even though Haas could probably could ride a tow motor for us, I've got a, uh, a sort of a trainee loadmaster on board today. So for his experience, I added that as part of the cargo, and we had a tow bar and, uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, we planned, we have a support network at Richmond, uh, you know, through uh, our wing headquarters and uh, our airlift group that plans the task and says, well, this is what you're sort of going to carry, but it's left up to the crews to try to, you know, communicate that with the people where we're taking that cargo off and uh, and do that. So, you know, we, we have an air movement section at Richmond that helped us load the plane today and uh, restrain all the cargo in there. And then when here, you know, we don't bring them today, so it's our job as loadmasters to uh, to put all that cargo back on, restrain it properly, do the weight and balance paperwork, and we certainly, uh, you know, we burn a few thousand pounds fuel coming down here, so we're less fuel, so we've got, we've got more weight and cargo, so we liaise with the pilots quite closely in working out how much cargo we can carry as opposed to how much fuel we've got. About about how much cargo can you carry in the J versus the H? Yeah, was- the, uh, for the C-130, the, the books say 45,000 pounds, that's the you know the Lockheed published uh, weights, but you know we we certainly could carry that on the aircraft, but we wouldn't get very far. You know, it's a the pay, the payloads are trade off with fuel, um, so generally we carry around the 30,000 30, pound mark, and uh, that's with full fuel, so that'll give us our greatest endurance. and And it depends where we're going, whether we're going over water or whether we're going over land or having intermediate you know refueling stops. But um, generally, thirty thousand pounds for both sort of aircrafts are a good uh, book figure that we work to, and then anything over that requires a little bit more careful planning. Yeah. 
I guess uh, mission planning can also extend to while we're airborne as well, and that comes down to a quite an art form between uh, communicating with our loadmasters down the back as well, because we may be doing airdrop, for example, and or parachuting operations, and this takes quite a lot of manpower and a lot of coordination down the back for the guys. So it um, also, if we have anything go wrong, like emergencies, or even just when cha- plans change, it's good to have lo- loadmasters down the back with a lot of experience to be able to come up with a bit of a plan airborne and sort of roll with a couple of uh, extra considerations for the task. So, yeah, the uh, the planning that we all go through and the experiences that we generate ourselves and we we swap crews all the time as well. So we generally have a quite a lot of experience and a lot of different qualifications by the time we all come back and fly together kind of thing. So it all works really well. And the mission today obviously is for, uh, you know, a, a bit of public relations out there. I know you're very popular out there on the ramp today. It's very imposing seeing the, uh, the hook out there on the ramp. You've got people walking through the back and uh, pretty much full access to most areas of the aircraft today if they want to get out and have a look. Yeah, definitely. We, uh, it's a big cargo compartment. There's a lot of people can fit in there. And yeah. uh, then they get channeled up to the flight deck and that's quite small. So it does take a bit of time. But certainly people can walk through the back of the aircraft and see the business end because we like to say that pilots only exist to take loadmasters to work. So. <laughs> Absolutely. They, that's their getaway line every now and then. So <laughs> we let them have their jolly. Every- yeah. <laughs> the Hercules is a mighty aircraft and uh, I'm glad you guys could spend some time talking to us. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, pleasure Thanks, guys. Joel and Jeff, welcome back to the show. How are you guys going? Yeah, pretty good, Grant. Absolutely wonderful. Cool. Now, uh, the two of you have had to totally slum it down here and have one of the fastest transits here in the uh, A37. Well, 18 minutes. I mean, it took a bit longer than usual, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we took it easy on the way down. And, yeah, we, we might not take it so easy on the way back. We've got plenty of gas for the ride. No, our kind sponsor, Shell, down here, have actually looked after us really well. <laughs> Especially come down half empty, leave full, right? Absolutely. Uh, Isn't that the way it's done? Yeah, I think yeah. someone said that's the way to do it. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, you've... You've done a couple of passes and demos and things like that, so you're going to do one more pass as you leave? Yeah. Um, well, as far as I know, we're, we're just going to take off and, and go, but the departure in this aeroplane is always worth watching. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, you don't really have the problem with, that you do at Bankstown with the low ceilings that you're allowed to go to, so are you going to, how fast up are you going to go? Uh, I'll probably, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do a max performance takeoff. So nice. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll get out of here. No other way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and Joel, now you've recently converted to the A37. Last time we spoke, you were going to do it, and yep. now you've done it. How was it? Oh, it was fantastic. And in fact, this is where I did my training. I came down to Wollongong with Gary Criddle, the owner, and uh, we beat around the circuit and did some uh, airwork handling, and yeah, it was fantastic. So good memories of uh, learning to fly this thing down here. Okay, cool. And how do you find it? Like, is, this is the first jet you've flown? Uh, it's the first pure jet, yep. Um, I've got 50 hours in caravans, Cessna caravans, so yeah, a bit of turbine time already. Um, this thing is just like nothing else I've flown, though. It, it is, the takeoff is worth the price of admission. It is so much fun. And um, yeah, I just, I, I'm privileged to be able to fly. And how are you guys finding the Combat Dragon Red Baron mix up at Bankstown? How's it all going for everyone? Yeah, look, I think it's working really well, you know. I, I fly Joel's planes, Joel flies my planes, and I think we get on pretty famously, actually. Yeah, I'm yeah, happy no, with that. I'm happy, I'm happy with it, and, um, yeah, we seem to have increased the jet rides, and Red Baron's ticking along pretty well, and um, Jeff's got a good team with him, so, yeah, it all works well together. Okay. Anything else you'd like to say while we've got you here on the ramp? Um, oh, just I think you guys are doing 
a great job and keep it up and Thanks. look forward to talking more in the future. Absolutely. Thanks. Waiting on my next download. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Uh, yeah, we've got a lot of content we're trying to get done and we've just recorded even more today. So. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks, guys. I know you're just about to do your pre-flight and disappear, so thanks for taking the time for a quick chat. No, no, no drama. Thanks, Grant. Cool. A pleasure. We're joined here by uh, Lieutenant Commander Todd Glenn and uh, Lieutenant uh, Rob McBeath from the Royal Australian Navy. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much. Yeah, Good thanks for having us. Okay, tell us about the little aircraft that you've brought here to uh, Wings over Illawarra today. We've brought the Navy's uh, frontline combat helicopter, the uh, Seahawk. Uh, we, uh, we only uh, stationed about uh, 25 miles to the south of uh, uh, the Wollongong Airport. And so this is our pretty much our local training area. And uh, so we brought along uh, uh, an aircraft that is uh, generally uh, used to uh, embark on the back of ships. And it's, obvious, uh, it's operations that don't get uh, uh, a lot of visibility because obviously our job takes place out uh, on the oceans. So uh, hopefully we can enlighten some people today on, uh, on its role and, and our job uh, in the Navy. Well, of course, uh, we're all familiar with seeing the Army's Blackhawks going around, but can you tell us in basic terms how the Seahawk differs from the Blackhawk? Yeah, look, the Seahawk was uh, derived from the Blackhawk, so it's a, but it's a navalised version. Uh, it's some minor differences. You'll notice uh, it's obviously painted grey, which is generally the first thing people notice, but the tail wheel is all, uh, always also brought forward as well to fit on a ship to make it a little bit easier. We also have a haul-down system, uh, which is uh, integral in the aircraft, which connects us to the ship when we need to land. Uh, but the main difference is uh, the you know, millions of dollars worth of uh, computers that the aircraft has on board and weapon systems to be able to go out and uh, prosecute submarines and uh, take the ship's eyes and ears over the horizon. Can, we, can I ask a question about that haul-down system? I've seen it in the movies. Is it, it, it appears that a ground crewman, or, or sorry, a sailor, hooks up a cable. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a the small uh, uh, cable called a messenger cable, which is the initial uh, cable that pulls in what they call the haul-down cable. Uh, that Once that haul-down cable gets winched up into the aircraft, it locks into the uh, into the RAS probe, we call it, and, uh, and once uh, that's locked into the aircraft, then uh, the uh, landing signals officer on the ship then applies about 6,000 pounds of hydraulic pressure uh, at an appropriate time yeah. and uh, pulls us down into the uh, correct uh, position onto the ship. So the capture region uh, when we're doing that sort of landing is really less than a metre square. And so what's your control inputs while that's happening? Like, are you uh, pulling up against it? or? Yeah, in fact, uh, a small uh, opposing input uh, uh, to stabilise a helicopter over that position, but really uh, for us it's just a uh, you're a, a passenger. And the ship can be moving along, pitching, rolling on big seas and while this is happening? Yeah, in fact, the, uh, the ship ship's helicopter operating limits, what we call shoals, are actually a lot uh, greater when we use that uh, okay. that system. So you can use up to roll 25. So the ship can be rolling 25 wow. and pitching something like 10 degrees uh, and we can still operate the aircraft confidently. And of course you won't Unlike a land-based helicopter, you don't have the lovely uh, visual cues of mountains and ground. you just got endless sea and a ship. That's right, yeah. And, and, the ship's uh, moving around. and then put that in a night context where you've it's just crazy. got these couple of little lights in front of you and no horizon, and uh, you've been uh, out flying for three to five hours. And it's raining. and Exactly. Yeah. So that, that sailor who goes in and grabs the little line you drop and hook it so it goes up, does he get danger pay for that? <laughs> That's why he joined. It's like, I'm, I'm here underneath this dirty grade helicopter on a pitching ship that 
deck that's got all the, that's wet and yeah, yeah. he probably uh, he probably uh, lamenting allowance. lamenting that day that he's uh, due to do that job. <laughs> that's for sure. I, I'm never going to be bad again. I'm never going to be bad again. <laughs> I'm curious about the amount of static, if any. Would that generate a lot of static? For it does. Room? And uh, in fact, we earth that uh, that uh, messenger cable uh, before we actually people touch it. So yeah, helicopters generate a lot of static electricity, especially in a uh, humid environment. So uh, yeah, we earth that uh, cable before we touch it. Now uh, we have a lot of uh, we've spoken to a lot of Air Force pilots over the time we've been doing this. And in fact, you guys are the first Navy pilots we've spoken to from the Australian Navy. At least we've spoken to some American guys. Tell us about the career path. What attracts you to being a naval aviator with the Royal Australian Navy as, as opposed to perhaps going in with the Army or, or that sort of stream? I suppose the uh, initial attraction for me, and, and you know, I was a, uh, an Air Training Corps cadet, so I was an Air Force cadet uh, uh, when I was a young fella. And uh, the, rather than being in the Air Force, which I saw as... Uh, uh, the main path for a pilot. I chose to take the uh, Navy helicopter route because I found that the uh, the training was exactly the same as our Air Force brethren, so we did the same training. But uh, opportunities to uh, to go overseas were, uh, whilst uh, is available in the Air Force, was uh, a lot more widespread in the Navy. So that the places we visited, uh, uh, doing our core job uh, for long periods of time, seemed more attractive uh, at the time. Yeah. What about you, Rob? Uh, for me, I guess um, I always had an attraction to helicopters. Where um, with my job as the aviation warfare officer but went down the air force pass it would be fixed wing um there's also uh the front seat uh side of things um is pretty much what attracted me to navy uh and living on the coast pretty much down on the south coast here you get to surf half the time as well um suited me quite well um and traveling at sea you get a you know a bed as well um and just something different um, I didn't have a lot to do with the ocean before I joined up. And now, you know, it's... Um, and I reckon you've got the coolest patch I've ever seen on a military uniform. <laughs> We're going to get a photo of that and put I it up was, on the website. Yeah, I did I notice that when you, when you guys turned up here, I noticed that one. Yeah, there's a, a great patch there. Chuck Norris approved. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I think it's important to note as well that, uh, you know, on our side of the house in the Navy that uh, it's very easy to deploy the Navy to uh, to operations overseas. Uh, international law of the sea allows uh, freedom of, uh, of manoeuvre. So for governments to uh, send Navy away is quite a, a minimal impact on other countries, uh, where to send the Air Force to try and find an airport to operate from and get uh, that third country permission uh, to do that can take a lot of time. Uh, so if you're into uh, doing the operational job uh, as a first response type uh, uh, organisation, that's where the Navy's uh, you know, certainly out front. When you um, are deployed to a ship, my understanding is that you're based in Nara and then you get assigned to go on the HMAS Adelaide, for example, and do a tour with them. Does that mean you all of a sudden now become under the command of the captain of the ship and he can say... You know, Lieutenant Commander, oh, you take the helicopter to go do something else? Yep, exactly right. Uh, do you just, have authority on the aircraft then? I do. I have some responsibility, and the commanding officer of the squadron also carries uh, some uh, operational command responsibilities under his airworthiness hat. Uh, but uh, operationally and, uh, I suppose, and uh, tactically, you come under the commanding officer of the ship. So I was on HMA Stewart on Op Slipper, uh, Rotation 25, just uh, last year. And uh, yeah, in, and uh, as a lieutenant commander, I ran uh, a seat one Sea Orc with uh, 15 other uh, people. And my job was to provide that capability to the ship's captain. And are you, you had the ability, though... Because the captain of the ship wouldn't necessarily have been a pilot, you had the ability to say, "Sorry, sir, but that's not going to work for these reasons, or it's too dangerous." 
and make those calls. Yeah, he expects me to do that. That's okay. that's that's what he expects of his uh, his aviation expert is to provide him with uh, solutions to a uh, uh, to a problem that he has. Yep. So he'll come up to you with a with a problem and say, oh, "I need you to do this, this, and this," or "I need need this sort of information." How are you going to go and do it? Yeah, I, I know. I read somewhere in the U.S. Navy. I know there are different rules, but to be a carrier aircraft carrier captain, you must have been a naval aviator first. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, aircraft carriers have uh, a unique uh, challenges. Uh, that's why uh, the aviator uh, brethren or branch yeah. uh, move through into seamanship after that. Yeah. Is that an advantage being the pilot on the on the uh, ship? Do you have some sort of uh, what a better term? Some privileges that other other officers and sailors on the ship don't have. So, I'll ask that question. I get more pay. Told me, yeah, there you go. More leave. <laughs> And no other duties. Oh, that's not true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I imagine if you're on a ship where there's uh, limited space, not a lot of people, you've got a lot to do. <laughs> exactly. When you're not flying. Yeah, it's uh, like any other head department on the ship. Uh, we all have the same. Yeah, all the heads of the department have uh, responsibilities, and uh, yeah, we're pretty. Uh, we're a pretty close bunch of people as well. So you know, we uh, we socialise because obviously, ship there's a 191 people. That's a bit hard not to uh, socialise. Tell us about, um, for people who are not familiar with the class of ships that you go out on, we talk about, uh, for example, the Adelaide. Is, is that that sort of class of ship? What sort of ship is that? Yeah, Adelaide-class frigate, uh, also the Anzac-class frigate. Uh, Adelaide-class frigate is a uh, Australian version of the uh, Oliver Hazard Perry class, which is a U.S. Navy uh, frigate. Uh, the Anzac-class frigate is, a uh, again, an Australianised version of uh, European Miko 200 frigate. So uh, we've, we purchase ships uh, from various... Uh, uh, Organisations, shipbuilders, and uh, depending on our needs, uh, so they're uh, of a frigate st- uh, size, uh, generally taking one helicopter. So when you, if you move up to cruisers, destroyers, and cruisers, you'd expect to start seeing two helicopters and the effectiveness that uh, that, that brings. Can I ask you about the Black Hawk that crashed onto the back of the Navy ship? Sure. Oh, I was actually a uh, flight commander of a Sea King flight on Canimbla when okay. that happened, so I'll, it's all reasonably out yeah. and open. So. Yeah. Okay, well, the accident where the Army Black Hawk landed on the back of the HMAS Canimbla, was it? And the, That's correct. And, yeah. and uh, very sadly crashed and they lost those soldiers and those pilots. Can I, can I just, obviously, the aircraft wasn't intending to land. Okay, um, so tell so us about it, was, it, actually. It was actually intending to do a, uh, a fast roping evolution. Okay. So they were making an approach, or, or practising to do that, so they're making an approach... Um, uh, doing a, a, uh, some flying evolutions and the intent was to come to the hover over the flight deck we put ropes down and then uh, our troops deploy on those ropes to get onto the deck and it's an efficient and quick way of deploying uh, numbers of uh, personnel uh, to, a, to a ship Do you think there would have been a, was a factor of the accident that it was an army person or army pilots who are not used to operating on ships? Uh, look I think uh, there was a small um, contributing factor that was the ship was actually not making way but it was still drifting and the army uh, crew had put it in their GPS as a stationary uh, waypoint that was a small uh, contributing factor but I think uh, the question you're asking is no because uh, most of those army pilots do uh, operate the same doctrine that we do so we have a, uh, a publication that we uh, we use for operating uh, to ships and the army are required to operate to that doctrine as well I guess the context of my question was thinking it was a landing accident because Previously, we were talking about the specialist skills of landing on a ship and the hooking the cable and the rolling the pitching. And I'm wondering maybe if it was a, if that was a factor because the army wouldn't train for those situations. Uh, no, no, not at all. They, um, when uh, the army uh, came out to do that job, they uh, they trained uh, sig- 
or spent significant time training to land on the ship, you know, to get their qualifications back because they right. do do that. And uh, they'd uh, done numerous workups to be able to do that. Was there one factor, one weakness of the chain that if it was stopped, it would have prevented that accident? Was there, was there one thing they did fundamentally wrong? Oh, I think uh, anyone that talks about accidents, there's uh, numerous contributing factors. Of course, yeah. And uh, I don't think there'd be one uh, factor. There's always one. If you, uh, you know, uh, someone maybe stopped one of those factors, that could have stopped the accident, but there's always a numerous amount and which one they would have been, who knows. The James Reason Swiss cheese model. There you go. There's a man who's done a bit of uh, human factors study. And as a result of the, the investigations, it's been several years now since that incident. I mean, has there been changes to your doctrine in general, the way you would operate onto a ship for you guys as Navy pilots? I wouldn't say that I've seen uh, much uh, on Navy's side of the house with respect to our doctrine changes. I think uh, there was some uh, lessons learnt for Navy with respect to the ship's response. And uh, yeah, like all good organisations, we've uh, you know taken those lessons out of the investigations and rolled that back into our, our normal day-to-day business. Rob, you said you're a, uh, an air warfare officer, is that correct? Yep. So can you tell us about that role and what that entails? Basically, uh, my role, um, sitting up in the front left of the Seahawk, um, we're a crew of three, so Lieutenant Commander Glenn, he's the pilot, uh, myself as the warfare officer, and we also operate uh, with the sensor in the back, operating the sensors. So basically my role, every day today, for, uh, for basically flying around like today, um, it'll be navigation, um, the radios, the comms, um, and basically just backing up uh, the pilot um, with flying and the admin side of flight. Um, when we're out doing a mission, uh, an anti-submarine mission, it, uh, it sort of changes in terms of we're now the tactical coordinator on board uh, as a TACO. And um, so basically I'm sort of taking all and running the mission uh, as it, uh, getting a lot of information from the sensor operator and also from other ships and aircraft out there, taking all the information and basically driving the aircraft around um, with uh, directing the pilot um, where to go, what heights to do as well. And depending on... Um, uh, so, sir, he's obviously uh, pretty um, experienced, so uh, that's where he chips in with his knowledge as well. And everyone, the success of the mission pretty much um, relies on how well the three crew work together. Um, so, generally, if you've got a crew um, fairly junior uh, in my experience, so um, they chip in with what they know as well and can really help each other out. So, um, yeah, mainly uh, running a mission is talking to ships, uh, coordinating aircraft and ships, um, all to try and um, basically hunt a submarine. Um, which you can't see, so um, a lot of it's communication as well. So. And that's your primary role is to go out and look for submarines. That's what the helicopter that's is what in the there. That's what the aircraft is for, yeah. And so. are you using uh, so dipping sonar, something like that? Is that how it works? Or? Not on this aircraft. We um, operate with uh, sonar boys right. only, um, active and passive as well. Um, dipping sonar... Uh, we used to have in the Sea King, um, which uh, Lieutenant Commander Glynn uh, used to fly, dippers, um, and the new aircraft that we're about to receive, the Romeos, will also bring the um, the dipping capability back, which is a big step forward for our anti-submarine capability. So, so that, that offers the best uh, the best solution for the sort of work that you do. You, you're sort of there and it's more real-time feedback. Is that the idea? Or? I don't know the tactics behind it yet, so um, I guess... It's not if they have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a consumable. With a sonar boy, you've yeah. you launched that out. Exactly. Too, and I guess that's what I was back. getting at, yeah. 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 So. yeah, and there's only so much power you can put into water from a uh, sonar boy. Yeah. So, you know, they're a uh, small tube yeah. uh, where obviously you can put a lot... Remember, obviously, the range uh, that you with your, uh, your sonar is all about how much power you put in the water. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, in a dipping zone, you've got a lot more power, a lot more uh, sophistication to be able to do that. Yeah. When you detect a submarine, and you obviously gone through your protocols, identified as an enemy and been authorised, what's your uh, weapon capability? What can you shoot at it? 
Uh, torpedoes. And you carry them on the helicopter? Yep, yeah, two, uh, generally, up to two. Uh, and uh, that's generally uh, the choice weapon of choice. Uh, the ships also carry torpedoes, uh, and or we could coordinate, or uh, we could be in contact with the submarine, and then some other helicopter that has the weapons for us, we can coordinate that attack as well. That's yeah. where Rod comes in, if she's yeah, exactly. the torpedo and organises all that. Yeah, exactly. pretty much. The coordinator, which is uh, in the um, Sea Orc, you, you become a tactical coordinator, which is part of it. So that's pretty much all it is. And you have to learn about, I guess, the defences of different types of submarines and the best way to uh, to, def- to to attack those. Yeah, submarines there's a number of different types of submarines out there, and um, nuclear, uh, conventional, and they all operate differently, and they all have their own tactics. And it's all just a matter of basically getting all the information you can and acting to what you feel is uh, necessary and it's all based on what you're up against so um, you do a fair bit of prep prior to and you generally know what you're going to be up against so um, all your tactics is you you think about it beforehand you get in there, everything could change but you've already thought about what ifs and all the um, scenarios and what you're going to do about it and you talk about it as a crew prior to going and everyone's pretty, um, pretty good a worked up crew can uh must be pretty competitive when you're on exercise you know you guys want to get the get the uh, submarine you're up against and they want to escape yeah. you yeah half the fun wouldn't it yeah competitive <laughs> against uh you know not just uh air crew obviously our other uh you know p3 our air force brethren uh but also uh, air crew against submariner you know um yeah don't don't be under any illusions the submariner's got everything going for him yeah and we've gotten you know the toughest job in uh in this side of the uh, of the war, really, and uh, you know they they are immersed in their environment, and we're trying to understand what how they're using it. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's uh, most submariners uh, are pretty smart individuals. They're very so canny. A, yeah, and uh, no such thing as a fair fight. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now you you were also saying you uh, project the eyes and ears of the ship, because of course the the ship is limited by how high the mast is, where the radar is yeah. at. You've got the curvature of the earth, so you guys will go out like beyond visual range of the, the ship, so yeah. you'll be out there working and uh, that allows them to actually fire missiles or, or their ordnance beyond what they can see with their onboard gear. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, uh, we call that surface picture compilation. So we basically use our radar, our ESM, our FLIR, to uh, give the ship a... I suppose a two-dimensional picture of what's on top of the surface or, or underneath if you're using, uh, you know, doing anti-submarine warfare. Yep. So, you know, for in, instance, in the Gulf, uh, we're out uh, doing uh, three-hour missions, three-and-a-half-hour missions. We were out 100, 120 miles from the ship and uh, talking the ship and reporting contacts that, uh, that are out there. Yep. Uh, obviously identifying those contacts, whether they're contacts of interest or whether they're uh, something that it's just a neutral shipping that's moving through. Yep. Uh, so we're, we're painting a, uh, a picture of the world that a ship would normally see. Now, uh, Rob, you mentioned before about the Romeo with the Dipper and so on. Now that we're getting them online, um, I believe it's in the next year, is it, that they're coming online with the Romeo? Uh, next year we are sending... Uh, the plan is to send air crew over to the States to train up, um, basically embed themselves over there, uh, get to know the new aircraft and the new um, the systems on board. Um, so they'll spend a period of time over in the, the US. Um, it's, it, it's all still got to be finalised, but um, basically they'll go over there and bring back the knowledge uh, with the, the first few aircraft and then stand up uh, the squadron on that. Well, Jenna, it's really fascinating. We've spoken to uh, so many aviators over the time, but it's really a privilege to have two uh, Navy uh, guys come in and tell us about how operations happen there. As I said, we've not been able to have that opportunity before. So, uh, uh, Rob McBeef and Todd Glenn, thanks very much, guys, for coming in. Our pleasure. Thanks, thanks guys. guys. See you later.
Andrew Musgrove from Southern Biplane. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Good to be here. Now, can you explain uh, what is Southern Biplane and what do you do there? Okay, so Southern Biplanes, um, we do pretty much joy flights, but what we do is we specialise in stunt flights and aerobatic pilot for aerobatic pilots um, and taking people and getting them to experience what it's like to be in the air and do some aerobatics and that. So we, um, we run two, two planes with that. We run a 1943 Boeing Stearman and also um, a pit special with that. Yeah. Nice. That's the big red beautiful aircraft that we've been watching today. The Stearman is the big red beautiful aircraft with, the, um, with Lily Warren on the side. Good, good bit of artwork, yeah, draws a lot of people. Any background on the big red? Because we've seen Stearman in a number of different colours, but yep. I don't know if I've seen any big red ones. Before. No, big red is a, um, it's unique. Um, so the history behind this particular one, um, built in 1943, it was used as a training aircraft in World War II for the Tuskegee Airmen, who were the first African-American pilots ever to be um, used in the military. So this one, we've got all the records for that. Um, and it's got a, a lot of history. From then, um, 1945, it was decommissioned, did a bit of um, work privately, which after that it sort of went into remission for a while. It was then discovered by an American Airlines pilot who's since restored it. Um, 2005, it had a full rebuild, um, engine everything from the ground up. From there, in late 2009 or early 2010, Chris Clark, who's our chief pilot, headed out and um, found it in New Hampshire and brought it back. And since then, it's been Lily Warra down here at Southern Biplanes. And it's getting a lot of work. Obviously, uh, we, we, just as we came in here, we saw it going out on another flight, so it seems like it's, it's getting a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work. Weekends are absolutely jam-packed, and our weekdays are very fast filling up. I think we're booked out about a month ahead on weekends at the moment. So, um, yeah, a lot of work she, she's doing. Tell yeah. us about the typical flight that you do. You probably have a lot of different packages that you offer with both the aircraft, for that matter. What sort of um, flights do you do with people? Okay, so we pretty much we started a base level at 20 minute flight for $299, and that's in the Stearman. Um, with that, you can do an either scenic or a stunt flight. We find most people end up doing stunts, even when they're paid for the scenic. Um, so that we head out, out to the beach. What Chris does then is he runs through a couple of different aerobatic manoeuvres, and then um, he puts it all together at the end, and you come back. From there we step up to a 30 minute flight and then again to 45 minute flights after that. Now with the pits, what we do is a flight called the G-Up, which is 25 minutes, all out aerobatics. You know, hold onto the seat, you know, you're going, you're not coming back unless you've absolutely been thrown around in this plane. And on top of that, we offer a package called the Wingman, where we send both planes up together, flying in formation, you split off, do your own aerobatics, then fly in formation back to the airport and land together. I think so you saw that going out just before. Yeah, you would have seen in. that going out yeah. earlier today. Yeah, yeah we, we saw the Big Red with the uh, little pits next yeah, to it. Yeah, and the pit sort of has to hold back a bit, hold back to keep up with Big Red. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the uh, manoeuvres that you do in the steam. And I mean, when you say aerobatic, I guess you would have to tailor that to the person that's in the plane at the yeah. time. But uh, what would a typical aerobatic flight entail? So a typical aerobatic flight um, begins with a wing over, um, fairly basic, fairly gentle. Um, and then from there, we go into all the manoeuvres such as um, loop-the-loops, um, barrel rolls, and also, well, my personal favourite when I went up, um, the tailspin gets everyone. Everyone loves a tailspin. So um, pretty much everything the pit does, we can get the seaman to do. Um, it just it rolls a bit more and it's a bit smoother. A bit slower. A bit slower, that's yeah. right, yeah. Bit more of a gentleman aircraft as is opposed to very banging much. around the sky. Yeah, it's yeah. uh yeah, it's cruising down, you know, the streets of LA and your nice big you know, <laughs> yeah. open top roads sort of thing. Yeah, that's right, music yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that. But when it when it wants to throw you around it can it can pack quite a punch. Yeah. Excellent. 
Um, you've also got a, an alpha or two out there. I thought I saw um, on the ramp. Was that one? That looked like a couple of the robins or alphas. Ah, uh, yes. Um, we've actually got um, the aerobatic school. The aerobatic flight school comes down, and um, they do a bit of flying with us as well. So they bring their robin down, and they operate out of our base. So um, we get a lot of young people that have got their pilot's license, and now they're looking to do aerobatics. So um, they come down here on the weekends, and they service sort of everyone in the area, and we offer that to people as well. Which, which um, aerobatic school is that one? Uh, I think it's Sydney Aerobatic School. Fantastic. Well, uh, we should talk about how people can find you online. You must have a pretty good social media presence, so tell us where we, we can do. find you. Um, you can find us primarily, firstly, on our website, so um, southernbiplanes.com.au. Um, from that, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and we run a whole lot of promotions on our social media. And, you know, it's just a great way to interact with the people that have flown with us, that want to fly with us, and it's nothing more than just interaction for us. The website's all the marketing stuff. Social media is exactly what it's there for, be social, yeah. which is good for us. We like to be relaxed with it. You know, we're very professional in what we do, but we're not too um, uptight. We like to keep it relaxed and chill as well. Sounds like a lot of fun. Well, uh, Andrew, thanks very much for speaking to us, and uh, looking forward to a great day uh, tomorrow at uh, Wings Over Illawarra. Yeah, no, thanks very much for having me on. Thanks, mate. Thank you. flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways is Australia's most feature-packed, cost-effective and easy-to-use electronic flight bag complete with AIP, URSA, DAP East and West, flight planning and much more. You can even submit your flight plan direct into NAPES. With annual subscriptions starting at only $74.99, it's the perfect flying companion whether you rent or own your own aircraft. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Barry Sandry from New South Wales Air, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, now uh, can you tell us a little bit about New South Wales Air based here at uh, the Illawarra Regional Airport? Primarily we're a, a flight training organisation and we focus uh, on not only training our own pilots for our own operation but also for people wanting to move on to the airlines. So we pretty much pick you up from, from the very first flight and can take you through to your CPL. Um, we have a very uh, experienced uh, flight instructor, our CFI has uh, many, many hours and he's also a certified testing officer so fortunately for us he does all of our testing here as well. Um, we provide uh, training from GFPT through to, as I said, commercial, um, multi-command engine uh, 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 ratings and instrument ratings as well. Okay. That's the whole gamut to get you ready to you get you up to about 250 hours or so. With Pretty that, much, it? yeah. I mean, you're probably, you're probably squeezing a, a couple of extras on if yeah. you're doing your uh, command instrument rating over and above. But, um, yeah, somewhere up around that 250 mark. Okay. And uh, I understand you also do charter. 
We do. New South Wales Air uh, is the uh, is the flight training organisation, but we also do uh, uh, charter and fly in, fly out work. Uh, and we do scenic joy flights up and down the coast. I mean, Wollongong being such a beautiful place and this close to Sydney, we're very, very lucky that uh, we can fly in and out of Sydney Harbour. Uh, we do flights down to Jervis Bay, uh, flights from here to the Blue Mountains as well. So, great location. Yeah, there's a lot of scenic area here. Absolutely. What sort of aircraft have you got in the fleet? At New South Wales Air, we have a uh, Beechcraft uh, Duchess. Uh, for our tw- twin training, and uh, we also have a simulator which is built to emulate that aircraft as well. Uh, Piper Arrows and Piper Challenges. We have uh, three Cessna 152 training aircraft, and we have a Tomahawk, and that's about it. Oh no, we have a part Navy. Part Navy, yay. We should mention that because we're standing right in front of it. Well, this is uh, the, the one that we're standing in front of here actually uh, is a part of a uh, uh, the aerial patrol uh, outfit, and uh, this part navy sits alongside a Cessna 182 and a, a Piper Chieftain, which is the aerial, which are the aerial patrol aircraft. Yeah. Okay. okay so now you're talking about the charters being uh, a lot of uh, s- uh, sightseeing in a very beautiful area, mm. but uh, I understand you do other other work as well. Yeah. Well, the the, the, the scenic joy flights are more so uh, the uh, the flying around the local area so that people can have a look and uh, and we we promote that quite heavily so that we bring people into the area as well and uh, and show show them around. The charter work that we do is uh, private charter, so uh, there's quite a few companies in uh, Wollongong who like to uh, fly out to uh, central parts of New South Wales. Uh, We do fly in, fly out work for some of the mining operations as well. So the the bonus for us, I suppose, is we don't have regular transport services coming into this airport. Anybody wanting to get to specific locations, places like Dubbo and Mudgee and and, uh, and those sort of locations, we fly them out and, and charter them in, in one of our uh, one of our aircraft. Yeah. So that's typically the Chieftain and maybe the Part Navia, or yeah, pretty much. Uh, we use the uh, the Duchess for smaller flights uh, and uh, and then build up from there. Well, we know that uh, we know that times are tight at the moment, and uh, a lot of people are financially strained. Have you found that's had any impact on the number of students coming through the door? We have been very very lucky, actually. Um, as I mentioned before, we've got a, a quite a, a well qualified CFI who attracts uh, some good quality uh, candidates. Uh, and we've been very fortunate in the fact that right here where we are, we're automatically in the training area. So all students in general crunch the numbers and see how much it's going to cost them to do their CPL. We're very well priced with regards to how we can uh, provide a, a CPL. Uh, and in addition to that, um, suppose if you look at places like Bankstown, for example, you've got to fly for a certain period of time before you're in the training area. We're already in the training area here, which saves them a considerable amount of money, not only at PPL level, but all, uh, definitely at CPL level. Yeah. And that... Uh also, you're, um, you're you're not as congested at this airport, it would seem. Even though you've got all these aircraft True, around, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not quite three runways in parallel like Bankstown has. Dead right. And we were very fortunate uh, in, in, in respect of uh, some of the... Uh, uh, when some of the schools closed down at Bankstown, we picked up a bit of that business. But in addition to that, we've got aircraft in particular that... Uh, uh, the Indians uh, students that uh, we have uh, are needing as part of their endorsements before they head, head home, inclusive of our part Navias, and uh, that's where we pick up a fair bit of business in twin endorsements as well. That's such a big, seems to be such a big uh, component of, uh, like we're from Melbourne and a lot of the training schools down there have got a lot of students from India, Asia, that sort of region. Uh, is that a, a big component of your operation here? Yeah, there'd be about 20% of our students would, uh, would be... Um, uh, a mixture of probably Indian and Asian students, and the remainder would be uh, 
Aussies and Poms. Yeah. <laughs> so do you find that business, I'm, I'm curious about this sort of business because it seems to play such a, an increasing role in your training operations here in Australia. Does that business find you or do you act, actively go out and look for that business overseas in India and Asia? And uh, no, we go looking for it. We have a, a fairly comprehensive website. Fortunately, you know, the internet these days, it, uh, it generates a lot of business for you, which yeah. is fantastic. Um, we go looking for it. We promote it uh, both locally and, uh, and overseas. And, uh, and our website sort of uh, points them in the right direction. We were talking in an earlier interview today about uh, aircraft that, uh, in fact, I'm considering or had been considering purchasing a 152, something like that. It seems to me, from at least from some of the operators I've spoken to in Melbourne, that they're more leaning towards the newer generation of aircraft, that they're more RAS-type aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you were saying here you've got a lot of 152s on a line. I mean, what's, I mean is that the newer type aircraft, would you be... I'm curious from a personal perspective, but also for the show... Mm whether that's just a type of aircraft that you'd be gravitating towards in the future, or do you think the 152 still services your needs? For the time being, it does. There's a natural evolution which is about to take place uh, within our business, and we're uh, meeting uh, shortly at management level to talk about some of those issues, and one of them will be uh, some some of the uh, newer type aircraft that are available. Obviously, some of the older stuff that uh, they're still getting around uh, is going to be limited uh, over a period of time by the hours that they've got to play with. Mm. Uh, but at the moment, it's servicing our needs very, very well. Um, and they're a very, very cost-effective aircraft to run. Uh, in addition to that, particularly with new students, you can give them a hiding and uh, <laughs> and they really they, they stand up to it. If they've held together this long, they'll hold, hold together pretty well. Yeah, anything. yeah pretty much. And we're, we're fortunate too. We've, we've got our own maintenance facilities here and we have our own Lamy. So he's on, on the case constantly making sure that the aircraft are in, in top nick. Okay, so uh, you're, you're looking at potential aircraft. Would you stay in the Cessna trainer like the 162 Skycatcher or you haven't got to that point of deciding? Or... No, we've actually had a look at a few different aircraft. We're, we're looking uh, at uh, the Skycatcher, we're looking at the Diamond, we're looking at uh, a couple of the other uh, uh, composites as well as uh, the, uh, the Bristol. And uh, it's a matter of uh, sitting down, crunching the numbers and, and really uh, seeing where we want to go with it. Well, uh, mate, how would uh, people find New South Wales Air on the internet and uh, to make contact with you if they're interested in uh, following up on uh, getting a CPL? Yeah, all the W's uh, and NewSouthWalesAir.com.au. So NSWAir.com.au. Correct, yeah. Okay. And there are uh, areas where they can download uh, our brochures and and get a bit of an idea of what uh, our costs, etc., are. Uh, and, and the best idea then, of course, is give us a call and uh, come in and have a chat with one of our instructors. Excellent. Thanks very much. OK, well, I've often said that uh, I don't know that I would have what it takes to jump out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft, but somebody that does that on a, a very regular basis from the Australian Army is uh, Warrant Officer Adam Paris, and he's here with us. G'day, Adam. How are you? Yeah, how are you going this afternoon? Uh, well, you put on a couple of displays today. You've been quite busy. Yeah, look, we um, we came out this morning. We, we had the opportunity to actually open the show at 11 o'clock, which was really good, out of the um, C-47, the Dakota, um, and just quite literally finished uh, finished a, the, the last jump of the day, like... Uh, just I'm, I'm pretty much near the cross strip, which okay. it's, it's great work, you know. But well, jumping out of the Dakota, I mean, uh, I mean, you guys would be used to jumping out of uh, modern military aircraft, but uh, was that an experience for you, jumping oh, out of something like that? Yeah, it's it's really good fun. Like you can, you can almost close your eyes and picture, you know, it's the, the 40s. Um, obviously, we're wearing a little bit different equipment, but uh, I mean the bar. Are, bit of a paint job and a better service than what they probably did in those days you know it's it's pretty much as clean an aircraft as what you get very good crew up the front very professional i think the i think one of the captains actually is an old a380 captain or current or something like that so that's pretty good yeah. 
Can tell us a bit of a bit of a brief history of the uh, the Red Berets and uh, how they came into being and what what their role is with the army. Yeah, look, the um, the Red Berets. Well, the, I mean, we're known as the Red Berets, I suppose, that just as by our nickname. Uh, if anything, uh, we're actually we're the Australian Army Parachute Display Team. So um, we draw our team from the instructors at the Parachute Training School. It's uh, at HMAS Albatross in Nara. So um, we're military instructors, so all army instructors are responsible for uh, teaching, you know, the static line and free fall parachuting for the whole ADF. So we, um, when, when, when we're not, I suppose, at work doing those things, we, you know, there's numerous, um, numerous events on the, on the uh, program where, where we draw down from, you know, dependent on the skill level of guys for displays here. Uh, even though the weather wasn't great, I was actually down at the MCG for Anzac Day. I was meant to jump into the MCG, but the, the, the weather conditions weren't favourable to it. We're from Melbourne. We know what yeah, it's like. I mean, <laughs> you generally don't end up on the TV, but if you do something wrong in, in this sort of game, you're definitely on TV. So yeah. we, we don't like being celebrities for the wrong reason. So, yeah. So um, what was your career? You know, you're currently an instructor. Yeah. Uh, so you're jumping a lot of the time. Yep. When you're not jumping, though, what's what does a, a jump instructor wind up doing? Oh, look, we. Um, I mean, it takes it takes a lot of work on the ground and administrative processes to, to yeah. keep the training going. So you generally find when we, when we're not jumping every single day, but certainly when we do, when we are when we are jumping, we capitalise on the good weather and the um, and the serviceability of aircraft. I suppose. It's, okay. Yeah, but uh, in, in between, it's you know, it's just like a normal job. We've, we've got to, we've got to, you know, put all our bookings in and you know, organise training areas and all the mundane stuff that you you do just so you can actually keep jumping. Yeah. And so, what was your career path to get to the point where you're now uh, a jump instructor? Oh, look, I joined in um, I joined in '92. Um, I'm, I'm my background, I'm an, I'm an infantry soldier. So the uh, the unit I went to was parachuting. Um, so I came through the parachute school as a student. Was that what you wanted or was that what you were given? Look, I, I sort of was given the option between Townsville, a unit up in Townsville or um, the unit in Sydney. Um, I, I didn't really didn't really want a parachute, but I certainly would have... Uh, Sydney drew me as opposed to going to Townsville, so it was... I had a, a little bit of a fear of heights when I first started doing this thing, but I've, I've certainly got over it now. <laughs> I think that's gone. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and just through the nature of staying in that unit and doing advanced courses, um, it just sort of streams down that path, you know, to become a freefall instructor. Now, that's something I, I'm interested in. Um, how do you go when you, you, you've got soldiers coming in and it's their first time to jump? I mean, everybody must have a, a fair bit of apprehension. I mean, I'd be crapping myself, I can tell you. It's yeah, just yeah, not something yeah. that would come naturally for me to do, but how do you, how do you address that with trainees when they're coming through the system. Oh look, we um, we certainly um, uh, certainly a, a static line paratri- uh, static line soldier will uh, spend a, at least a week and a half on ground training. So we're instilling in confidence in them and in their in their drills. Firstly, their equipment, the the processes that we've got in place, uh, the instructors themselves. That uh, so constantly over that uh, week or so, we we're um, you know building. I suppose a, a happier nature into their mind about what they're about to do. We've also got a uh, parachute tower at at uh, Nara, which is a 30 metre tower where we hoist the guys up there and they do their parachute drills. And depending on the weather, you know, probably 90% of the time, if if the weather's good, we'll get them up there and expose them at least to that that uh, 30 metres. Uh, but you generally find them. We may 
occasionally get someone balk and not not because everybody must be a volunteer so it's not like we can get them up there and then just go look it'll be a waste of money and throw mm. them out yeah you know if they don't want to go we've got to counsel them normal procedures and if, if they don't want to go well it's just we land the plane and they go along their way and find something else to do you, know, yeah. you generally find majority i can't remember the last time someone actually didn't want to do this you know, certainly from the freefall side of the house like everybody gets exposure um, by doing military style static static line parachuting and then once they get advanced qualifications and start doing freefall it's something you definitely want to do you know because civvies do pay money to do that. Oh, yeah. Like, it's one yeah, of those yeah. jokes that we use. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting paid to do the fun, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Now, now you're, with, with the static line, you guys are all jumping uh, the rectangular airfoil parachutes? Oh, we've got, um, with static line, we jump, a, a, it's a round parachute. It is the round. Um, so it's more designed to get you the, to the ground quickly for tactical reasons. You don't want to be low to the ground and people, you know, can, pot shots. can take pot shots at yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but certainly the parachutes we were jumping today, plus our, our military-style ones, are, yeah, they're a ram air aerofall. So, I mean, bar the fact that they're made out of nylon, they're, they're, they act like an aircraft wing with a false yep. nose at the front and the, and the air rams in, in the front. The, sa- the same kind of style as the uh, ones that most of the civvies are jumping. Oh, yeah. I mean, with the, the jumps you would have seen us conduct then, they're on a sports-style parachute, yep. you know. Yep. Um, if we had of... We had had a few more guys here with us. We could have done. Uh, we did a what's called a red team, so the flags and the smoke and the hurrah. But we can um, we can certainly do a green team where we jump in in, in military style equipment, you know, with that, with our backpacks on and all that sort of stuff, which is which is good. Now, uh, what's it like jumping with and having a dirty great flag under you? Oh, look, it, it's it adds a little bit of fun to it, you know. It, it, you do get a little bit of a pendulum effect on there, but you generally guy uh, generally. As long as you take it nice and gentle, I suppose it wouldn't be too different to you know if somebody was had a sling load underneath a helicopter or something like that. Yeah. I mean, we don't have any power. We're, we're destined whatever direction we're going. <laughs> we can control which way we're going, but uh, certainly if the operator puts a bit too much input into his toggles, it can cause some problems. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we've certainly done a lot of grading and practice before we even get an opportunity to embarrass ourselves in front of you guys. So we try not to. <laughs> yeah, you want to make sure that you've got because you, you've got all, you, you pull from the instructors, so you get nominated to go on the team. Yeah, yeah. And so you've just been nominated to go and join the, the team. Yeah. Where do you go from there? How, how does it step up? Oh, look, it, it'll be dependent on their skill level. Like this this jump, even though it's quite high high profile, so the team that we jumped in were, were quite experienced. Um, but certainly, if we were um, if we were conducting a descent at one a, a smaller area, not as much air traffic and, and, a, and a bit bit larger DZ, we we might be able to take the less experienced guys still as a member of the Red Beret, but just to get their experience because you just don't want to get thrown in the deep end, yeah. you know, under a postage stamp drop zone with helicopters around it. You know, there were a lot of on your first, you know display jump. You were saying that uh, you're based out there in Nara, which of course is a naval facility. Yeah. Um, how is it that the, or why is it in fact that the Army's training centre is out there? Or do you do multi-service roles? Oh look, they've got a they've, they've got a really good airfield out there pretty much. Um, it, uh, although it can get a little bit busy with the helicopters, brings us back to our previous point. So we do, we can spend a little bit of more time in the aircraft, you know, waiting for waiting for them to move out and or turn their um, turn their rotors off. Um, I'm, uh, like the parachute school moved from Williamtown to, to Albatross in the 80s 
and uh, they, they pretty much build a purpose-built facility. You know, it's a little bit of a weird setup. You know, there's about 80 of us tacked on the back end of a Navy base that doesn't have any water near it. That, <laughs> that, yeah. that it pretty much acts as an Air Force base. So, yeah. you know, we and certainly it's a tri-service facility, I suppose. Um, you know, but we don't have any. Certainly, the little portion that we have is, is just all just all army. Okay. And what, what roughly, I don't know if you can tell me this, what rock proportion of uh, Australian Army infantrymen would be trained to do um, parachute sort of work? Oh, look, we... Yeah, it's not like it's... It, it is a bit of a niche um, capability, I suppose, but certainly we, we're training, you know, hundreds of static line paratroopers every year. You know, like, a lot of them won't necessarily always just stay and keep doing that, you know. So it, it, we, we provide both static line and freefall um, training to the whole ADF. Yep. Um, yeah, it certainly keeps us busy enough anyway. I don't know. And it's, it is quite an expensive thing to do, so it's not like people would just come down and do the course just for something just to do. Fun you know, the, 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 they'd have to have a direct reason why yep. to do the course, but we've certainly got no problems filling our panels. Well, I know I know a couple of guys who are in the reserves and they, they've done the paratrooper course. And yeah. Yeah, they said it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. It's enjoyable. I mean, it does... It's enjoyable. Some, it can be can be a bit arduous at times, you know, like, but everyone, everyone um, every, I suppose every job has its hard hard things. It's certainly got some perks, like I, I get yeah. to jump into great days like this. And oh, exactly. <laughs> Another thing I'm curious about is uh, jumping at night time during, as opposed to jumping during the day. Do you do a lot of night jumps? And yeah, what are some yeah, of the look, specific we, things? We, um, we, we do do, you know, like night training, like when the guys... Um, do both their static line and free fall course they're, they're jumping at night because I mean it, it, it is directly related to what you can do on the battlefield I suppose so and it's a 24 hour battle you know so you need to be able to do this stuff at night uh, can, I mean that's when that's when well, we've got a very good safety record and certainly a lot of doctrine that, that makes the training as safe as we physically can you know but you, they've got to certainly the guys got to have exposure to that and certainly keep practicing it you know because it uh, yeah, it's a, you may they may be called upon to do it one day I suppose. so I, I guess you're totally jumping um, altimeter on that one because how do you, you know you're jumping into the dark into a dark space yeah well it, it'll, it'll depend like with the static line parachuting um you're pretty much you're pretty much governed by where the winds are going to take you. But certainly with um, with freefall, like we we'll jump with an altimeter, um, so we we always know where we um, how high we are off the ground. Um, we might even have GPSs, like just wrist-mounted GPSs, if it comes down to it. Uh, and certainly for for training purposes at, at the school, we we have the, the drop zone illuminated, so we know where it is. Not to a degree where you can see where the ground is, but I mean, sometimes, I mean, a moonlit, a well, a well at moonlit night certainly is enough to be able to, you know, do the job. Or, or sometimes it might be just complete darkness and you... Yeah. yeah. I suppose in an operational theatre, a well moonlit night would be the last thing you'd want, though. Yeah, yeah. it's certainly what the guys don't don't want to see, you know. They, yeah. they sort of err away from that as opposed to... Yeah. yeah. So when you're coming in to land at, at, in, at night time and you're in darkness, I mean, I know as a pilot, uh, depth perception is a, a big mm. factor when you, you're coming in to land an aircraft. Is that an issue for you guys? Oh, yeah. yeah. Look, I mean, we um, sometimes really it might just be a case of pulling your canopy down to half brakes, like slowing it up as much as you can, 
get your undercarriage up and your legs and just slide in on your backside, you know. If, if you can't see the ground, it's better better to um, make a decision and hide and, and stick with a plan than um, you know, sort of risk not seeing the ground until the last minute and then yeah. it's about a second after you should have actually reacted. So, I mean, either we'll, we'll do that or, um, I mean, the guys, one of the reasons why they do static line parachuting is um, you get told, uh, taught a specific technique for landing with those parachutes, which involves sort of landing and um, sort of like a breakfall, I suppose, landing and washing off momentum by falling on the ground intentionally. Yeah. So it's certainly something that we can pull out of our bag of tricks if we're under, you know, a, a faster mover, moving canopy, and you, you've got to, you've got to sort of, I suppose, be able to walk away and yeah. do the job at the end of it in the yeah. dark when you. Yeah. Because that's that's a joke when you're flying an aircraft and you you've got the engine out at night. Yeah. And the, the joke's always as you're coming down, turn off the landing light. Sorry, turn on the landing light. And watch what you're seeing in front of you. If you don't like what you're seeing in front of you, just, just turn, turn it off. Just turn it off, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, for that's, that's a joke for you guys. That's yeah, a reality. No, look, it, um, I mean, it's certainly not... Um, no, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not really as scary as what it sounds, I suppose. <laughs> I don't want to really talk it up, but sometimes... And you take the good with the bad, I yeah. suppose. You, yeah. Sometimes you have really good ones and other times, oh. yeah. Mate, for me, it's it's an indication that you guys uh, definitely walk a little bow-legged with some clink in there. I mean. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Look, some guys, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say we don't injure ourselves sometimes, but, uh, you know, like it's a, it's, we we make it as safe as we, yeah. we physically can. And it's something you've got to get exposure to. You don't want guys really getting exposed to this if, if called upon to do it overseas one day. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably another silly question, but um, going through cloud, I mean, you, you have much uh, experience where you would perhaps even be VFR on top and drop through cloud. Do you do that sort of stuff? Yeah, look, we um, it depends on what profile we're doing. Um, certainly, I mean, I've been in cloud plenty of times. Yeah. Um, it's just a case of just be facing in the right direction and, and keep looking out. You yeah. know, um, we'll, we'll be jumping similar to what you saw then. In, in teams, you know, so a, a, a good brief before you get in the plane, you know, identifying there may be clouds, the the usual thing. We, we certainly don't. I mean, one thing we don't like doing is is opening in clouds yeah. you know, because you're going to be in close proximity to the other guys that you've jumped out, but certainly above or below. Uh, pre- preference is below because if you're above, you know, that's when, I mean, we'll, we'll jump instruments, you know, we've got an altimeter and, and certainly if we know that we're not going to be able to see the DZ, we'll have, we'll have a GPS on us and, and all that sort of stuff. What about the technique, uh, I believe you call it halo, like high altitude, low opening, do you yeah. guys practice that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, we do both, you know, like so high altitude, high opening, um, you know, it's a case of what, what training we, ne- we need to be doing, you know, like the, um, we can use the parachute to, you know, do whatever a parachute does. Like we yeah. can either um, be close and, and low to the low to the ground or high and, and, and move in like an aeroplane would. You know, is that sort of technique more the purview of special forces, for example, or is it something that everybody has? To oh, do? look, everyone everyone learns it. Um, certainly, um, I mean, as as I said, we do we do train the whole ADF. You know, like and, and special forces are part of the ADF. Um, certainly, when. Um, they do come through the, the parachute school like yep. everybody, not, not everyone that um, conducts this sort of training is special forces. But, you know, we're, we're sort of not in a position where we stand there. And, I mean, they've, they've got protected identity, so we, we don't really sit there and confirm that they, guys are special forces. But certainly um, um, when they're at a trainee level, everyone needs to get exposure, whether it be a rigger, whether it be, you know, someone like myself when I was coming through, you know, as an instructor or, or a, you know, like a special forces guy that like he's doing his initial training like we're all exposed to the same certainly at 
at the parachute school, like we get them up to a base level where they can go off and yeah. hopefully enhance their skills if they get to keep doing it. Because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a degrading skill, I suppose. It's like flying, isn't it? If you don't, you got to stay in current. the saddle for. Yeah, you got to. The same with us. Yeah. Talking to a few of the skydivers, I know they're like, yeah, if I haven't jumped for a, you know a few months, yeah, they're like, okay, stop, slow down, go through everything. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. Together. Oh, look, it's the same for us. You know, like we're. The, I suppose the thing we're, we're also falling in the sky as well, so that that's a degrading skill being able to manoeuvre yourself around as well. So it can be fun sometimes, especially um, especially when you're jumping with students and you you know like it's the first time you because we'll, we'll jump out holding on to them yeah. first up, you know, and, and it's always it's always fun when you let go of them the first time. It's <laughs> a little bit like a cat chasing a ball sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah. So like doing the accelerated freefall course that yeah, the yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, I mean we do we do the same, and then we obviously then um, then certainly um, in comparison to the civilians ramp it up a, a, a lot more with um, you know and start training more of a military yeah. sort of style behind it yeah and what do you do to relax on the weekends do you come out to civilian schools and just jump around with those guys oh, I do you? sometimes yeah like a, it's a bit of a it's a little bit of a joke around the school like a lot of us um a lot of us um, do currency jumps and skills jumps and, and jump at you know drop zone drop zones around the area. You know, like up in Sydney, majority of our guys go go up to Sydney if they haven't if they haven't done it for a while. It's a little bit a little little bit of an addiction when it comes down to it. And yes. again, and, you know, I mean, parachute systems aren't aren't cheap. You know, and it's certainly not cheap getting in a plane and, and getting to height. You know, but the, the guys are willing to do it. And, um, we got, got to get their fix. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's exactly I'll tell you what, well, uh, Warrant Officer Adam Parrish, you're certainly a braver man than me, mate, and we uh, really appreciate you coming and telling no, us about that's this. Right, thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks a lot. Adam. Yeah, Thank cheers. you. Chris Clark from Southern Biplane, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under, mate. Awesome, thanks for having me. No worries. Now, mate, you are the pilot of this gorgeous red Boeing Stearman. What made you interested in flying, and how'd you wind up to this point? I grew up in an aviation family, my father in the GA and airlines over the last uh, 30 odd years. What actually really got me into flying was uh, I watched a movie called uh, Never Tell Me Never about Janine Shepard, um, who had been paralysed and um, then learned to fly. And not only learned to fly, but uh, became an aerobatic instructor at the Sydney Aerobatic School. And I saw this uh, film, and I, and I saw the school, and I thought, I've got to do that. Uh, after leaving school, went and learnt to fly at Sydney Aerobatics. That was with um, Noel Cruz? With Noel Cruz, yeah. And I uh, really fell in love with the stick and rudder side of flying. So my ambition to become an airline pilot sort of started to diminish. And, and so, yeah, I really got hooked on it and doing aerobatics. And um, my professional career began uh, at the Red Baron as a line pilot flying the pit special. I later became a, an aerobatic instructor there and spent six years teaching people uh, aerobatics. And That's Red Baron, Sydney... Yeah, so that's where I was really able to hone my skills uh, stick and rudder-wise further. Towards the end of my time at, uh, at Red Baron, I sort of fell in love with the idea of the retro side of aviation, the golden years of uh, the DC-3s, Stearmans and the Barnstormers. And so I got this idea that maybe we could start something here at Wollongong, uh, running some adventure flights, but in a more modern version of what they used to do in the 1940s and 50s. And so that's that's how Southern Biplanes um, came about. And uh, about about 18 months ago, we we launched and got our air operator certificate, and uh, we've been going strong since. And, and you launched with the Stearman? Yeah, we, we started with the Stearman, which we named uh, Lilliwara in uh, recognition of our local area that we that grew up and, and fly in. Which is the Illawarra. The Illawarra, of course, uh, which to me is probably one of the, the nicest places to fly, especially in the Sydney Basin. What makes it so nice? Well, we take off and we're straight over 
the coast for a starter. We've got some of the most amazing beaches and not only that, we've got the Illawarra Escarpment uh, rising out of the sea, which is quite an awesome sight in itself. So, you know, within minutes after taking off, we're up to height doing aerobatics in an open cockpit biplane. Now, I understand you went to the US to pick up this aircraft. Yeah, uh, we went over about uh, nearly two years ago now after a long hunt. Uh, it took about 80 months of research to find the right aircraft and decide on the steerman as well. We went through multiple different types of airplanes, Wacos, Great Lakes, Stearman, Pits, and uh, narrowed it down to the Stearman. What made you select the Stearman over everything else? I guess it's an iconic aircraft for a starter, and it's an aircraft that's built and has stood up to the test of time, really. 10,000 built in the 40s, and now still over 1,000 flying in the world. And so I think that's a real testament to the strength and the glamour of that airplane. Well, given it was built as a trainer, if, if they're still flying now after all this time, they must have been built pretty damn well. Absolutely. Survive. Well, there's a certain romance, isn't there, with the Stearman? I mean, it's a, it's quite a graceful aircraft for its time, even though it was built as a military trainer. I guess you could really push that, that romantic angle, couldn't you, for when you're trying to uh, oh, picture adventure flights, yeah. So why this particular Stearman? Were you just looking for any Stearman? Or? No. One of my main uh, criteria was that I wanted a barnstorming Stearman. So I didn't want to stick with the typical um, Army Air Corps or Navy colours and make it look like a military airplane. Uh, where I wanted the company and the airplane to sit is in that uh, post-war era where um, they were using rides machines and also um, ag aircraft, very versatile airplane. Thus the beautiful red colour. Exactly, and when I saw this one come up, met all the uh, criteria as far as you know times to run and uh, when the aircraft had been restored and that sort of thing. And we actually, uh, yeah, we found this one, went over to New Hampshire and the east coast of America, pulled her apart and brought her back to Australia. Okay. Let's talk about how she handles. Uh, what's the classic speeds and, and things like that? Okay, so she's uh, not built for speed. It cruises about 95 miles an hour, so we don't get anywhere in a hurry. As far as handling goes, the aircraft um, is very stable, built like a trainer, but the control harmony is very, you know, the controls are very well harmonised and it's a, and it doesn't do anything out of the ordinary. It's, it's a very predictable and, and pleasurable aeroplane to fly. So it's only got the ailerons on the lower wings, so it's not got a snappy roll rate? Absolutely. It's not a pit special. Um, with the bottom ailerons only, they're fighting against that top wing, so the roll rate is down a little bit, but uh, it's still quite capable uh, as an aerobatic aeroplane. I'm just curious about the fuel burn. I mean, it's a radial engine. I mean, is it quite thirsty on the fuel? Uh, not as much as you'd expect. It's a 670 cubic inch engine, so we're talking quite a big displacement, but it's only doing 220 horsepower, and at a cruise kind of power settings, we get in around 55 litres an hour. What kind of engine is it? Yeah, this particular Stearman has a Continental W670, yep. which is uh, seven-cylinder radial, and it's swinging a uh, fixed-pitch timber propeller. And that gives it a fair bit of grunt to get off the ground, and so it's built for climb? or Absolutely. The whole aircraft, I mean, you know, they, that's why they made such a good ag aeroplane, as they could haul a big load out of a relatively short strip. You've mentioned the word barnstorming a few times there, and uh, you've indicated your love of that barnstorming era. I understand you're recreating that these days. Absolutely. I mean, that was sort of where I, I wanted to take Southern Biplanes, but, uh, you know, in my former uh, job uh, flying up at the Red Baron, I was involved with air displays and, and that kind of stuff. And in the process, found about these guys that would go town to town doing these um, amazing stunts and taking people flying for joyrides. And I thought, that's something we don't have in Australia. And it would be such a cool thing to go town to town taking people ride, uh, on rides uh, in the steamer. Okay, so you're doing this barnstorming, but what, I take it you don't just grab the plane, go out and come back. What do you do? No, absolutely not. Um, part of barnstorming is really embracing the uh, communities and also providing a, uh, a platform for the local area clubs around 
around New South Wales to let people know that they're there because what we're finding is that most people in, in these towns don't know that the area clubs even exist. And uh, so it, it's an opportunity for the area clubs to raise a bit of awareness and, and possibly even a bit of funds through there. Each one of them do, does a, uh, you know, a cookout on the on the Saturday night that we're there and, and, and it's a big, you know, big party. You go out there, you fly around that weekend, spend the Saturday night out there, fly back here, then go to a different place the next weekend? Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is actually we head out to a, a country town. We've pre-organised it with the local area club. We, we basically just rock up and uh, put our sign out and wait for people to turn up. And actually, surprisingly, uh, you know, we uh, we get out early in the morning, fly around the town. By midday, we're you know we're full. Yeah, yeah, it's that, that classic thing of the aircraft advertises itself by just getting out. And Absolutely, flying. and it's an aircraft that flies slowly. It, spends, it stands out in the air, makes the right noise. Well, thanks, Chris. That's all sounding fantastic. Uh, I, I just I personally love the whole barnstorming thing as well. So I think that's great what you're doing. How can people find you guys if they're interested? Uh, basically, jump on the web and uh, get into www southernbiplanes.com.au uh, or give us a call on 024257 and we can give you all the information and, and organise it. Fantastic Chris and we uh, thank you for your hospitality and letting us set up the mobile studio here in your wonderful hangar. Not a problem at all, thanks very much. Thanks mate. Thanks mate. Harry Mitchell, welcome to the show. Great, nice to be with you, thank you. Cool, now Harry, you're involved with uh, Aerial Patrol here, can you tell us what Aerial Patrol is? The Aerial Patrol is a, a coastal surveillance organization primarily it's a it's a not-for-profit organization uh, runs as a, a, a charity uh, it was founded in 1957 as a result of a, a public meeting that was convened by North Wollongong Surf Club and the City of Wollongong Council uh, there was a need for some sort of aerial surveillance uh, to assist the lifeguard process uh, of Council 17 beaches uh, because of sharks, people losing their, uh, just getting lost on the beaches and so on. And, um, and so the Aerial Patrol was born in 1957 to patrol the beaches between Stamwell Park, north of Wollongong, and Windang to the south of Wollongong uh, every Saturday, Sunday and public holiday of summer. Over the years, that's now now grown. Uh, the the aerial patrol uh, extends south to Mollymook near Ulladulla, uh and north to Palm Beach uh, on Sydney's northern beaches. And this past summer, we extended up as far as through the central coast and up to Newcastle, and and that's quite an area. And, and for for those. Uh, coastal surveillance flights we're flying at 500 feet we use two aircraft we use a, a single engine Cessna 182 and we use uh, this part in Avia that you've just seen behind me uh, and they um, they patrol the, the coastline continuously on Saturdays Sundays and public holidays and during the summer months of uh, December and January uh, when the beaches are most populated school holidays tourism and so on uh, we do the weekdays as well between uh, middle of December and end of January that's the function that aerial patrol is best known for because the planes fly low 500 feet over beaches everybody sees them they're red and yellow in color but assisting the 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 beach safety providers in other words, the professional lifeguards and the volunteer surf lifesavers. Uh, it's a great asset. It's the eye in the sky. It provides an early warning system to those uh, beach safety providers. Uh, we can um, give them a heads up if there are sharks or bad water conditions, rock fishermen in uh, areas where you know it's a little bit dicey for their um, well-being. You know, and we see countless sharks. Everybody asks, do you see many sharks? And yes, we do. 
but by the same token, I'm sure there are many that we miss. But what's important is an early warning system. Who do you uh, coordinate that with, just out of interest? What, what, what agencies would you talk directly to? We speak directly to the beach safety providers. We have uh, every conceivable ra- radio frequency, emergency management frequency on board those aircraft. We have police frequencies. We have uh, marine rescue frequencies. We have rural fire service frequencies. We have a whole variety of uh, frequencies that we can talk to various agencies. And But, but what's important... Um, we, as an, an early warning system, as I said, uh, we can provide a heads up to those beach safety providers. Uh, even if we're not seeing sharks, for example, we may be seeing large schools of fish. And if we think that those fish are going to be getting near a populated beach, for example, um, we'll give the lifesavers, the beach inspectors, a heads up uh, that, that this is happening so that they're on a heightened alert then because those schools of fish are very good at attracting other forms of marine life. Yeah. yeah, larger forms of marine life. And we're seeing dolphins, we're seeing stingrays, we're seeing a whole lot of things out there that uh, the people on the beach and the beach safety providers just don't see. Um, but at the top of that food chain is the, is the big Noah. You know, and uh, those sharks can just come in and uh, uh, gobble up all of those fish. And occasionally we might get in the way. So imagine a large school of fish that may have a quarter of a million little fishies in there and come in and all of a sudden uh, those fish are swimming amongst uh, swimmers' feet. And then the the race is on. And, I mean, you've watched television. In the height of summer, you've watched those uh, shark feeding, those frenzies. Uh, The the news cameras seem to pick those up. (laughs) We don't want anything like that to happen. So during our patrol area, we're we're just providing that early warning system. And similarly, on land, if we're patrolling, but if we see a wisp of smoke in our escarpment, well, that's a clear indication to us that there could be a bushfire up there. So, bang, straight onto the radio, we let the RFS know. They can send a tanker up there if they don't already know about it. So, you know, it's all part of our community work. How is it funded? As a charity, we, uh, we rely on sponsorship. Bendigo Bank has uh, our naming rights sponsorship. We're known as the Bendigo Bank Aerial Patrol throughout the community. All of our promotions, everything that we do reflects that. And uh, then we have a lot of uh, other sponsorships that come in underneath that through registered clubs, local government uh, along the coast here contributes towards the operation. And uh, like rural fire services people, like uh, surf clubs, we do lamington drives as well. And we, <laughs> and we also run some major promotions yep. such as car shows and what have you. Now, if you're uh, a commercial pilot, is that your minimum requirement to yeah. come and fly? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've got to be uh, type-checked on the various aircraft, have a commercial licence. Minimum number of hours? or Look, we'd like to think that the minimum number of hours will be around about a couple of hundred. We'll look at as low as 150 if, if uh, we uh, deem that the person's quite competent. Our chief pilot, uh, Mr Warren Genjos, uh, well-qualified in, uh, in, in the whole uh, aviation spectrum... He will make the uh, the call on that, and if um, if a, a budding pilot can satisfy uh, our chief pilot, well, um, the guy's got the gig. Well, it so, must be a great opportunity for pilots who want to build some hours up. Well, it is. You know, uh, only recently we counted up currently from those that have come through here in the last 20 years, 
We have 34 people in the left-hand seat of um, major airliners around the world uh, and some in the, in the right-hand seat. So, you know, I, I'm sort of proud to be able to say that we've helped people get careers. Okay, and these are all volunteer pilots, they're not paid. They're, That's they're... right, they're all volunteer pilots. We do a lot of search and rescue. We're part of the emergency management and, and emergency rescue spectrum of the southeast region of New South Wales. And in the year 2000, uh, the Aerial Patrol was appointed uh, a Tier 1 search and rescue unit, fixed wing unit. One of only three providers of fixed wing search and rescue, the highest level of fixed wing search and rescue in the Commonwealth. And our Piper Chieftain, it was fitted out with thermal imagery and uh, we, we were dropping containers uh, that um, contained... Uh, bilge pumps to vessels in distress in excess of 100 miles out to sea beyond the range of a rescue helicopter. Uh, And we we did that for seven years. The only thing that changed was that the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, on behalf of the Commonwealth Government, called for new tenders and wanted one operator to provide uh, that type of aircraft around the country and uh, Aero Rescue was born then and, and they placed Dorniers in various cities yep, around the country. there's one in Essendon. Harry, if people want to find out more about uh, what you guys do, they can find you at aerialpatrol.com.au? Of course, uh, yes, and uh, that's regularly being updated and, and of course, uh, you've spoken to Barry Sandry, our marketing manager, and he spoke to you about New South Wales Air, yep. and there, there are cross-links there to uh, each of the organisations. Okay. It's fantastic work, Harry, and we uh, thank you for spending some time telling us all about it. Thank you, gents. Thanks, mate. Thank okay, thank you very much. something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 k's with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you playing crazy back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com
James Gray, Officer Commanding of the Albion Park Air League. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, James, uh, tell us about the Australian Air League and what you guys do. It seems to me like uh, there's there's a lot of cadets around here today, so I'm assuming that you've brought a lot of those here with you. Uh, Yes, there is. A a lot of these cadets that were out here today were out. Um, We're often confused with the uh, RAAF cadets, but we're not actually the RAAF cadets. We're the Australian Air League. Uh, We've been around for about the same length of time as the uh, RAF cadets, Um, but our program's a little bit different to theirs. We're a civilian not-for-profit organisation. We have uh, young men and young women from the ages of 8 through to 18 uh, parading with us on any given night, um, which is a a key difference to the uh, RAF cadets, which uh, basically start at about 14 is their youngest cadet. So you've got four years in the RAF cadets to really, you know, ply your trade, whereas our guys have got a much longer period to uh, engross themselves in aviation. Uh, another key difference between us and, and a lot of the other cadet units is that uh, our education program is very, very broad. Uh, we cover a lot of things from field craft and uh, practical aspects of um, lifestyle and diet and all that sort of stuff that you'd probably find more common in the scouts, all the way through to uh, very, very high-level aviation training, um, right through to basically GFPT standard uh, within the uh, aviation prog- uh, education program within the uh, Australian league okay uh, now you mentioned that you're doing so it's, it does sound like scouts meets cadets to to join us aviation with that whole you know, be prepared kind of attitude very much so uh we, we take that uh, be prepared motto sort of from the scouts and apply it to aviation and uh teaching airmanship from a young age is, is one of our key goals um we're very lucky here at albion park because we parade at the haas hangar uh so we get to uh run around and sniff airplanes every night so that's great excellent uh but it also gives us a lot of opportunity to instill airmanship like things uh around safety around aircraft not walking through propeller arcs all that sort of thing that uh, you get hammered into you when you start doing your flying training we started at a very young age so uh, yeah it's, it's a really good opportunity we've got a really great bunch of guys and uh, we have a lot of fun now you, you mentioned uh, all the way up to GFP, GFPT standard yes does that include getting your GFPT no at the moment the uh, Australian Air League are working with CASA uh, to become an approved training organisation to uh, do the theory component of GFPT um, however we do have a flying school um, out at Camden um, which Australian Air League members are eligible to fly with and we do have fully qualified instructors out there and they are uh, an approved training organisation. So what we generally find uh, is that cadets who have gone through our education program and completed their Navigation 1, their uh, Aero Engines 1 and all the other different uh, courses that we do, number one being the highest level that we do, starting at level six, going upwards to number one in reverse, it's kind of weird. But what we find is that the guys that have done all their level one training, they go out to Camden, they do their GFPT and they can uh, smash out the theory component pretty much in one weekend uh, without any trouble and then they get stuck into flying aeroplanes which is really what we're all interested in. Now of course the, the flying component, uh, James, is one side of it but uh, you know, comparing it to the scouts and of course my kids are in the scouts so I can mm-hmm. sort of compare it that way. You guys uh, do camps, hikes all that sort of stuff as well. And We certainly do. Uh, we also have um, a structured education program around things like public speaking. We also do the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Uh, we've got a number of cadets working their way through that at the moment which is uh, a really great achievement to see the guys uh, and girls in the Air League um, progress through that and achieve it. It's, it's uh, some real world experience and uh, paperwork that they can then shove in their resume and tuck under their arm and make themselves stand out from the crowd, uh, which is is uh, very important in today's day and age. Any edge you can get is, is really important. And uh, So that would be the uh, your equivalent of the Queen Scout Award, is it? Absolutely, yeah. Award? yeah. Okay. 
And what, what I mean when you talk about that sort of thing, they have to go and do community service and that sort of stuff? Yep, community service is uh, another big focus that we have. All of our cadets that were with us today that have helped us out with marshalling aeroplanes and uh, marshalling car parks and other aspects of just getting an air show organised, uh, those cadets have accrued uh, probably about eight or nine hours today of community service, which goes towards their community service awards. Uh, first community service badge, you need to do 15 hours of community service. Uh, and for your second one, you've actually got to rack up another 45 on top of that, I think. Uh, don't quote me on that. I might have that a little bit wrong. They're changing it all the time. Uh, but, yeah, it, they really raise the bar um, on that one. And it, it's it's inspiring to see some of these young guys go out there and do things on their own, like Clean Up Australia Day or uh, Relay for Life, that sort of thing. They, they get uh, community service hours for that as well. So, uh, you know, the, they really take pride in, in uh, getting these achievements in the Air League. Okay. The, I, I noticed that there were people in blues today. There were also uh, looked like some young young folks in the greens, the, the com, like almost combat fatigues. Yeah, they're probably the army cadets. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're not our guys. Yeah. Um, the Australian Air League, uh, our uniform is based loosely on the uh, RAF uniform from the late 40s, early 50s. Um, so uh, hence the reason why our uniforms look a little bit traditional, uh, whereas the uh, RAF cadets have got a, uh, a whole new uh, uniform that looks very much like uh, current serving uh, members of the RAAF. And just like the RAAF, you uh, maintain a rank structure for the for the kids to uh, work their way through. Does that work yes. pretty much the same way as the as the real world ref? Pretty much. Um, we start out uh, with cadets. Uh, everyone starts off as a cadet, pretty much. And then you go through to leading cadet, corporal, sergeant, flight sergeant, and warrant officer, so on, uh, and so on. So uh, yeah, we have a, a rank structure, and uh, it's a hotly contested competition to see who gets the next promotion. And uh, it's it's always good to uh, to see them uh, trying to outdo each other on who's going to be most eligible and uh, <laughs> yeah. Now um, you know, another very important part of military life is uh, discipline and drill as well so I mean you, I, I know you guys do drill, in fact I've seen the kids out there doing it today but obviously that's a very important part of sure. what you do and there's very important reasons behind that. Yeah um, we do do drill um, we practice mostly ceremonial drill uh, it's not so much a core component of what we do on a nightly parade uh, but it is definitely part of the air league and we take uh, a lot of pride in uh, standing up on Anzac Day and marching with uh, the servicemen uh, we also attend other uh, ceremonial parades during the year for uh, for instance November 11 Armistice Day uh, we also have a ceremonial parade coming up uh, in a couple of weeks uh, We've just uh, finished a fairly big engagement, actually, uh, for Anzac Day. Our squadron did uh, two community marches on the Sunday before Anzac Day. We did the dawn ceremony and then the main uh, Wollongong march here in, in the Illawarra. Uh, and that was a, a lot of fun to be part of. And uh, the cadets got a huge kick out of that. So, uh, yeah, we do a, we do drill. Uh, but as I said, it's not a, uh, a main focus for the night. We'll do a lot of practice leading up to events. But uh, it is a, a good way to instill discipline. Now, I know one of the issues in the scouting movement is always uh, trying to get people to uh, become leaders. And do you find that's an issue for you? And uh, how do you attract people to come into that sort of role? Uh, in terms of, um, like, instructors or officers, that sort of thing? Yeah, is that, is that how yeah. it works for you guys? Or do you find that, uh, you know, the young kids, as they come through and get a bit older, graduate into doing what you're doing now? Yeah, we do have a structured program of uh, migrating cadets out of the cadet role into the officer role, and we certainly get a lot of uh, officers that way. Um, but uh, in squadrons like mine, uh, where I've got a predominantly fairly young squadron, most of my guys are between 8 and 14, uh, so we're down the lower end of the... Uh, 
the 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 age group, it's much harder for us to uh, get instructors and and uh, officers. But um, if anyone's listening and they're interested, by all means, give me a call. Um, <laughs> Because we, uh, we're we growing very quickly. Um, our squadron's now got um, 25 regular cadets every Tuesday night. And uh, you know, we've only got the two officers at the moment. So it's a, it's a big handful. Uh, but we always have a lot of fun. And uh, in that regard, there, there are avenues for direct entry as an adult. You can come in. It's a simple police check for working with children. Uh, make sure all those boxes are ticked. And then again, it's about a six-month training program, uh, which sounds very officious and uh, uh, difficult, but it's not really. It's just getting to know what we do in the Air League and how to do all the paperwork and ah, always the paperwork. how to march in a straight line. And that's well, about yeah. it. Well, I think, it, you know, the, you sum it up. It, it's important that the kids have fun. And it's, but, you know, the other important thing about your organisation and other organisations like it is it's teaching them some life skills. And it's, you know, it's very, very important. Absolutely. And that's one of the key differences differentiators that we see um, that makes us stand out uh, or at least a a key point of difference from uh, the military cadet units is that our focus isn't on, you know, shoot that, don't shoot that, Um, you know, and this is how the upper echelons are structured. Our program is is a lot about life skills um, as well as instilling discipline uh, and pride in these cadets. Now, um, so as, as you've progressed through the, the ranks of the cadets mm-hmm. and you've worked your way in, mm-hmm. uh, how well does that translate if you do decide you want to go off and uh, join the RAF? The RAF actually view the Air League uh, fairly favourably, um, especially if you've achieved a, a fairly high rank um, or achieved any of our uh, more difficult awards that we have uh, every year we have a state and federal cadet of the year uh, and we're very lucky down here in Albion Park we actually have the female cadet of the year uh, from a federal level her name's Bronwyn Smith uh, and she parades with Albion Park as well um, so yeah we're very lucky to have her uh, in our in our organisation down here but certainly cadets who achieve those sort of uh, awards within the Australian Air League are viewed very favourably uh, by the RAAF um, cadets who get the Duke of Edinburgh Award, who complete the public speaking training that we do within the Australian Air League, uh, again, are very favourably viewed um, as the RAF uh, have matured over the the years. Uh, their recruiting program is not just looking for you know gung-ho, stick-and-rudder guys. They're actually after guys who are and girls who are very capable pilots and have the right aptitude, attitude and personality to go with it. So uh, we think that we can very much contribute to uh, the other side of things. The whole well-rounded background. The whole well-rounded, yeah. Well, it sounds like a fantastic organisation, James, and uh, we thank you for coming down and uh, talking to us, a bit to us about it today. And uh, we might have to talk to you some other time about some other guy called Gray that we know on the yeah. Lifestyle Pod Network. Oh, no, yeah. not that vagrant. Let, let me just load a fresh uh, SD card into my recorder here and we'll have we'll chat about Dave. <laughs> meanwhile, uh, for people who are interested in uh, joining the Air League in general and uh, your group in particular, yep. how would they go about finding you? The easiest way to do it is to go to www.airleague.com.au and uh, that's got all the contact details for our federal branch and our state level branches and they'll be able to put people in touch with their nearest squadron. Excellent. Fantastic. James Gray, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you. And as we leave the wings over Illawarra 2012 air show behind, uh, we're back here in the studio now. And uh, boy, Grant, what a fantastic day. The weather was great. It was a great representation of aircraft there of all types. Some fantastic interviews. And uh, boy, we had a great time despite the uh, very, very long drive.
<laughs> yeah, the drive was a killer there and back, uh, just over 1,600 kilometres. So uh, quite the run for the weekend, but mate, all worth it. I think Haas did a fantastic job. Uh, they and everyone else involved in putting that air show together, absolutely brilliant. As you said, a very diverse range of aircraft, which really helps make it a, a great show for people. It's not all from one era or it's not all props. It, it was a good mix up and uh, yeah, a shame we couldn't get some serious aerobatics and also a shame that the uh, F-18 wasn't able to come to, to its thing. But uh, otherwise, a brilliant show. It's interesting actually that you talk about the uh, the F-18 not being there, Grant. I don't know whether you know but uh, in the hangar next to where we were at Southern Biplanes there, they had a uh, petition there. They're trying to petition the uh, the Air Force to uh, have a, a Hornet present uh, at the next one. Yeah, the reason they couldn't have the Hornet there apparently was some noise complaints. There's a few people in the area who don't like other people coming in and having a really good time for one day of the year. So it's it's a shame, but unfortunately I believe that was a major factor in it. Well, that's disappointing on many levels. Well, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully that uh, that petition will get up and uh, hopefully the Air Force will give it some uh, due consideration. I'm sure uh, the uh, Historical Aircraft Restoration Society would hold some sway uh, when it comes to matters like this. So well, let's see what happens. Sorry, mate. It just it pushes my buttons and I get a little upset with these people. And- I, I'm sure it pushes the buttons of, every, of uh, everyone that listens to this show, Grant. But uh, looking at some other positive things there, great to see the uh, Caribou aircraft, the two Caribou there that Haas are operating, um, and they looked in uh, really spiffy condition too. It's funny, you know, you sort of forget really quickly what they look like and what they sound like when they've been off the scene for a couple of years, but uh, brought back great memories to see them uh, flying around again. Yeah, it was great. They had one flying and one static, and it's it's wonderful to hear those big radials roaring around and watch them do those slow landings and slow passes and going backwards with a good headwind, but it's it's a brilliant aircraft and it's a shame that uh, we just got way too expensive to operate but you know this is life we've got to move on and the caribou will always be pretty special to most of us yeah now it's a shame that anthony crichton brown can't be with us as we record this due to some work commitments it's about a week and a half later now that we're recording this uh, this outro here but uh, i gotta tell you i reckon anthony asked the question of the day when he was talking to the uh, to the seahawk crew there about the uh, the incident on the canimbla and listeners won't have heard it i actually edited that bit out where anthony actually uh, did ask them beforehand if it was okay if he uh, ventured into that subject and uh, of course uh, you know Todd Glenn and uh, Rob McBeath were more than happy to talk about it we really appreciate that I thought there was some fantastic uh, information that they were uh, giving across there about that incident and some of the human factors involved. Absolutely brilliant Uh, it was a really good question to ask Uh, I hadn't even thought of the accident and everything so yeah well done to Anthony to putting that one in and I I, you know well done also to Anthony for um, letting us use some of that music he sent through to us. Yeah fancy that I wonder where I've heard that music before. Oh I I think he might have had it for a special purpose. Yes, in fact, uh, yes, we actually, uh, we did splice in Anthony's theme music from the Flying Ant podcast uh, during here, so he sent us that music down. It's such a catchy tune. I think I'm going to use that a lot uh, in the next few episodes, Grant. Oh, there you go. It is It is pretty laid back and, you know, boppy. It's good. Well, I'll tell you what, that wraps up our coverage of the Wings Over Illawarra 2012 air show, folks. We hope you enjoyed it. We want to send out a couple of thanks and uh, shout outs before we go for this episode. Uh, of course, uh, we want to thank Southern Biplanes for allowing us to uh, set up and use their facility on the day. You know, nothing was too much trouble. They uh, let us basically take over the hangar and uh, while they were doing their stuff and uh, it was really great. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks, guys. Great to meet you all. Hang out. Use the hangar. 
and uh, drool a little over that beautiful red stearman. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the only thing that would top that grant would be a ride in that beautiful stearman. Uh, one day I dream. Open cockpit, biplane, aerobatics, uh, heaven. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, southernbiplanes.com.au, folks. If you're up that way, uh, certainly well worth a look. And uh, I reckon uh, with some of the scenery around there, right near the beach out over the ocean, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Are you talking about the scenery of the beach or the scenery on the beach? Well, you know, either way. Oh, okay, cool. Just checking. Yeah, you know, look but don't touch, I say. <laughs> anyway, we also want to thank our good friend Owen Zupp. He was uh, good enough to get up at some ungodly air in the morning on our way through, and uh, he actually cooked us breakfast, made us hot cross buns. Fantastic. So thanks very much to Owen. It was, uh, i tell you what, after a very long drive, we, we drove right through the night. In fact, we left on the Friday night at 11 p.m. from Grant's place, and uh, we made it up to Owen's place at about 7 in the morning. So <laughs> that was uh, very, very welcome, that coffee and those uh, hot cross buns. Owen, you are a legend. It was great. Uh, I was pretty happy to get out and stretch a little and um, have some non-roadhouse food so uh, and amenities. So yeah, thanks, Owen, mate. Really appreciate it. Yep, we also want to thank the uh, – Grant's already mentioned it, but we'll thank them again here – the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society. Uh, they were uh, very uh, gracious towards us and let us uh, walk around and do what we wanted to do and gave us the safety briefing and let us have the run of the place. Getting out and getting those interviews, uh, we didn't uh, get out too much, I guess, this time, but uh, they did uh, allow us to do that had we wanted to. But uh, I think uh, what worked this time actually was that we were able to bring so many people people, uh, you know, back into our little mobile studio there, which was very, very convenient for me. Oh, it was great. I, I thought I might be out running around recording with the handhelds and bringing a few people back and you thought you might just be enjoying the show and maybe take a stretch, but otherwise do some editing to get ahead of things. And we were flat out. We just had people coming through for interviews, bang, 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 one after the other. It was, it was pretty full on. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciated the fact that Haas helped us out. We're willing to um, give us a bit of a run and uh, also helped us out with a bit of parking. So thanks gang. That was brilliant. Yep. Just a quick shout out to our listener up there. Uh, it's been very helpful lately. Josh Masterton or Josh Bullitt as he goes on, uh, on uh, Facebook there. And uh, yeah, Josh actually helped us set up those interviews with the aerial patrol there in Barry Sandry. So thanks very much for that, Josh. And it was great to uh, meet you uh, the night before when we had dinner at the pub. Oh, yeah, dinner at the pub. Awesome. Bit cold, but good. Yeah, it was a bit chilly. But uh, anyway, that, that's all good. Uh, and uh, just finally, we want to thank a big shout out to our to our team member here, Alan Van Page, uh, who's our sound engineer for our mobile studio and uh, is becoming our, uh, you know, he's really becoming great support staff, isn't he? And he was our roadie for this weekend. Made totally. it very, very easy for us. Uh, just uh, handled all the audio set up for us and uh, boy he's got a great audio setup that he's uh, assembled there but uh, I tell you what anytime we needed an extra microphone or whatever we needed set up uh, bang uh, Alan was just right on it and uh, fantastic he did the big road trip with us as well Grant and, yes, uh, we've, yes. Really, we've really appreciated Alan's support uh, you know through the through the last year or so we've been doing some work with him but uh, this this trip really proved that uh, the mobile studio concept really does work and we we're, we're certainly looking forward to doing a lot more of that in the future no, it was great and thanks also to Alan for riding shotgun the whole way up uh, he sat in the left seat and sort of help keep those of us who are driving awake. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening. As always, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back very soon with episode number 88, Gramp. And until then, well, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. 
Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. <laughs>